0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 212, Thoughts on God and Time. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to give a few of my own thoughts on God and God's relationship to time, and indeed on philosophy of time. After the six-part series that we just went through, a few people on Facebook or on email said, Well, what do you think, Tuggy? Which is right, the side that thinks that God is timeless, or the side that thinks that in some sense God is in time. Well, I'll tell you in a minute. Another reaction I got was, Who cares? This is just bunch of academic jibber jab why should anybody want to sit down and expend any amount of energy on this issue of is god in time and what is time well honestly i really don't think it's a stupid merely academic debate i don't think it's unimportant i think it's rather important as far as these types of debates go i don't think god is going to reject anybody because they have a mistaken speculation about time or anything like that But if you're trying to make sense of divine revelation, this is going to come up pretty quickly when you compare divine revelation to mainstream Christian traditions. Before I get into that, although in this first segment, as I promised at the end of last week's episode, I want to give a brief personal update. The big news is that my family and I now live in the state of Tennessee in the Nashville area. I am still teaching online for the State University of New York at Fredonia, but it's unclear how long that arrangement's going to be for. The main reason I moved down here was because I got an offer to work outside of academia, and it struck us as an answer to prayer. Many, many factors were involved in this decision. I'll say that money was a big part of it, but not the only part of it. Part of the attraction is that my family and I would be able to go to church at Higher Ground Church in White House, Tennessee. This is a great little biblical Unitarian church. That is to say, a non-Trinitarian, non-denominational Protestant church. Basically, it was founded by Dan and Sharon Gill. The main pastor of it now is Mr. Mark Jones. And I have to say, the people there are wonderful and we've really been enjoying Higher Ground Church since we moved here— In the last part of December. I have no intention of walking away from my scholarly work. I do hope to finish my big book on Trinity theories that I've been working on for years and other things that I've been writing. Though I have to be honest, right now my time is extremely filled up. I'm basically doing two full-time jobs right now. Oh, and also I have a podcast, and that can take as much as two days a week worth of work more if you have to read a book. For right now, I'm able to keep the Trinities podcast going once a week. It's very likely that I'll switch to three times a month or possibly even two times a month. That's part of the reason why I've encouraged people to switch to Patreon to support the Trinities podcast because Patreon lets you give support by the episode rather than just giving a certain amount every month. But yeah, so that's, that's the big update. I didn't get fired. I probably am at some point going to leave academia in a sense, although who knows how long and how much I'll teach online. Part of the attraction of the job down here was flexibility, that in principle it can be flexible and um, could possibly be consistent with my doing various other types of things. So that's the short version. I talk with you privately i'll give you a much longer version or if you're in on our once a month uh, video chats that i do for supporters of the podcast uh, you can ask me anything you want about that but that's about all i'm going to say about it for now when the trinity's podcast returns some of my thoughts about philosophy of time and about god and time Let me start off by giving the standard cowardly philosopher's disclaimer that this is not my specialty. I do have a lot of views in this area of philosophy, but it's not really something I've published on in professional journals, although I've published once in a related topic, which is open theism. I have taught metaphysics classes and given lectures on philosophy of time and, and also thought a lot about the problem of theological fatalism, so that's why I have a lot of views about these things. The first thing I want to say is that the Bible by itself is not Enough to really settle these questions. I agree with Dr. Grossel in the last talk that was given about this. The problem with the Bible is that if you're going to sit there and misread it, it's not going to jump up, grab you by the lapels, and shake you until you stop misreading it. It's just going to sit there. Any written sources like that, any written source presupposes that you, the reader, have your God given common sense and that you have the sort of experience that's common to all the human race. There's no replacement for those things. If you lack common sense, and if you don't pay attention to experience, you're going to get off into la-la land in some of your beliefs and in some of your speculations. Divine revelation doesn't take the place of common sense and experience. So, just simply quoting the Bible isn't going to settle these issues about God and time, because... For centuries, people have come up with strategies to read the Bible, which fit their views about God and time. Having said that, that's not to say that all views about God and time equally well fit Scripture. Here's a view of time. It's an illusion. It's unreal. Well, that view of time doesn't fit with Scripture very well. Scripture clearly presupposes That time is real because it talks about all kinds of different changing realities, like me and you, for instance. So that's a philosophy of time that's not going to fly, arguably, with the text. Of course, a metaphysician could say, oh, I know, it appears that time is real. So the Bible reflects that appearance of the reality of time. It's all written just about the phenomenology. It's written concerning how things seem Sure, yeah, we know that it seems like time is real, but we're just saying it's not real. There's something impossible about time. It's a self-contradictory concept when you really get into it. (sighs) Right. Well, you know, there's no helping some metaphysicians. But I hope you'll agree with me that that philosophy of time isn't going to fit as well with Christian scripture as the other philosophies of time that were talked about in that six-part series. The way I think about it, there are basically two families of views about time, which I'll talk about in an upcoming segment. But before I do that, let me go back to the point about common sense and experience. Here are a couple of things that I think that you know, no matter who you are, no matter what culture you're from, and it's really not dependent on your philosophical views unless you have some view that's a defeater for this knowledge, that can happen. But anyway, normal Properly functioning adult human beings, at least ones that haven't had their views transmogrified by commitment to some bizarre speculations. Uh, If you're a person like that, in that category, among the things that you know are the following two things. Number one, you exist. Number two, you change. Again, there's no helping some metaphysicians. There have been philosophers who deny the reality of change, any sort of change. They think the very idea of change is self-contradictory. Not a very popular view, no, but some famous ancient Greek philosophers held this. More philosophers have held that it's false that you exist. Most famous example of this is the classical Buddhist no-self doctrine. This admits that it seems like you are a real changing enduring self. However, on close inspection, it turns out that there really is no such thing as that. What there are are just momentary events, which different Buddhist traditions call skandhas or dharmas. So I know some will deny that people do know these things, but as for you, maybe you're a Christian, or maybe you're at least a theist, or maybe you're just a naturalist with common sense. I hope you agree that you exist and that you change. So what is change? Long ago, I think Aristotle put his finger on an important little piece of conceptual analysis. Change presupposes the concept of numerical identity. The very idea of change is that at an earlier time, something is one way, and at a later time, that thing is a different way. So it gains a property or loses a property or changes properties. That's what change is. There's a before and an after, an earlier and a later. But change is not the same idea as replacement. So suppose you're scrolling through your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed and you're feeling just fine. And then you see a really annoying political post on there and a change occurs. You go from not being annoyed to being annoyed. And change is different than replacement. It's not just that at time one, there's this non-annoyed guy, and then at time two, there's a different guy, and that guy is annoyed. Oh, and the, the two guys at time one and time two are very similar to one another, but they are two different things. Right, that's replacement. If you have two really similar things, and at first one thing exists and is one way, and then the, at the second time, the other exists and is another way, then you'd have the illusion of change, but really you'd have replacement. You'd have things just existing for short moments of time and throwing off the illusion of change. No, change presupposes that one and the same thing is a certain way at one time and then is a different way at a later time. That, I claim, is a correct conceptual analysis. Of the concept of change so for any change there's a subject of the change and then there's a before and after and the subject of the change is numerically the same through that course of time during which the change occurs there's a before state and after state and that's one and the same thing existing through all of that time however much time you're talking about two seconds two days two years two minutes etc Okay, so you know that you exist and you know that you change. And so claims that time and change are illusory are just, those are just absurd. And to claim that there's no such thing as time at all. Now, it's not super clear what time is, but there is a before and after any change, right? We can talk about different times. The time before I was mad and the time that now I'm mad. And then finally, hopefully, I put social media down for a while and I cool off and now I'm not mad anymore. Okay, so there are three times there. Now, we can debate about whether time is a thing and how those times are related, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Okay, but to say that time is just a total illusion that there isn't anything real there, it's just a mistaken perception, that's just a non-starter, right? Someone says that time is unreal, I don't know, you can just pinch them. And they say, ouch, why'd you do that? And you say, hey, you weren't in pain, now you're in pain, right? So that's change. Yeah, so? Okay, well, change presupposes time. So time must be real. Now, if he wants to bite the bullet, go the further step and deny that he's in pain, or deny that those events occurred and things like this, there's no helping him. There's nothing Really nothing so ridiculous that a determined metaphysician can't defend it. If you don't believe me, you should meet some of the metaphysicians out there in the current philosophical literature or read more about the history of philosophy. Okay, so how are time and change related? It seems to me that it's obvious that change can occur only if there is time. What about the opposite? Is there time only if there is change? That's not clear to me. It's not clear to me that there is time only if something is actually changing. What's clear about time to me is that time is what's required for change to be possible. I don't see a contradiction in a scenario like this. God creates time in the universe and then he just snaps his fingers, so to speak, and freezes it. Literally. So like, all the normal changes that are buzzing and whirring around in the cosmos, suppose they all just stop. Suppose the cosmos becomes completely static. And suppose that God also makes himself static. Could this go on for a minute? I don't see why not. I don't see any contradiction. So as far as I can tell, there could be time without change. But as far as I can tell, there can't be change without time. So time is whatever it is that makes change possible. And if you know that something is changing, then you know that it's, quote, in time. Now about this talk about things being in time or outside of time, I'll come back to that in a bit. So I guess I disagree with the ancient view that was discussed in the last episode of the Trinities podcast, this view attributed to Aristotle that time is a measure of change. If by time you mean regular physical processes, like the motions of the planets or the motions of the earth and the sun, things like that, the moving of a clock's hands, yeah, you can use all those things to measure change, but I wouldn't call those things time. I would call them events which are in time. They presuppose time. To me, time is something more fundamental than those, than the moving of a clock hand or the motions of the stars and so on. When the Trinity's podcast returns, how is time related to God? In the last segment, I said that time is whatever it is that makes change possible. So, how would God be related to time? Well, here's one line of argument. If God exists, then God is all powerful. And also, He doesn't just happen to be that way, He couldn't be other than that, in my view. It's part of being a perfect being that you have the greatest sort of power. If you have the greatest sort of power, surely you're able to change. That's a power. However the range of God's power is, and I don't think it includes impossible things like making 2 plus 2 be 5 or making himself not exist and things like that. I also don't think that God can sin or lie or even be tempted. But whatever exactly is the extent of God's powers, surely it includes the ability to change, right? I mean, an electron can pull that off. A mouse can pull that off. You and I can change. Surely a being with the greatest kind of power that anything could have would have to be able to change, not necessarily undergo any kind of change. As Aristotle pointed out a long time ago, the normal concept of change is one and the same thing, being a certain way, and then it's a different way at a later time. So it goes from being this way to being that way. It's an intrinsic change in an existing, lasting reality. But of course, we think some things come into existence and go out of existence and those seem like changes if something's brought into existence there's a time when it doesn't exist and then a later time at which it does exist we call that in philosophy generation and at the other end of a thing's career it can be annihilated at t1 it exists and then it's knocked out of existence and at t2 it used to exist but it ain't there anymore so just because god can change it doesn't mean he can undergo any kind of change doesn't follow that he could come into existence or be annihilated. Those would be incompatible with other divine perfections, such as eternity and necessary existence and aseity. Perhaps most clearly in the case of necessary existence. So necessary existence means that a thing exists and can't not exist. It means that the non-existence of the thing is absolutely, fundamentally impossible. So if there's anything that has necessary existence, it never came into existence because its non-existence is impossible, and it could never go out of existence because its non-existence is impossible. So most Christian philosophers now, and I would say probably always, as long as there have been Christian philosophers, most Christian philosophers think that God exists necessarily, and that implies that there is no time at which God fails to exist, and it also implies that just It's impossible for God to not exist. Okay, so just because God changes, it doesn't mean that God can come into existence or go out of existence. Nor would it imply that his character changes. Look, we think, that is, at least Christian philosophers think, that part of what's essential to being God is moral perfection. We think that God couldn't be tempted. We think that he knows all relevant factors in any situation because he knows all. And we think his motives are always just as pure as the wind-driven snow. He's never going to do anything bad. He's never even going to want to do anything bad. Right, so if God is morally perfect, then it seems like part of that is his moral character is going to have to be unchangeable, or at least can't get changed for the worst. You might think if there was no top level that it could keep going up or something, but... Yeah, if I'm right, that time is that which makes change possible and that an all-powerful being would be able to change, then the existence of God implies the reality of time. God is able to change. Time is required for there to be change. So then if God exists, therefore time must exist. That seems right to me. Now, what if God had never created? Some philosophers have suggested that God would still exist in a sort of changeless, undifferentiated time. I guess that seems possible to me. Others have suggested that he's just existing in time that flows by its own nature somehow, and so maybe God just waits around an infinitely long time before he creates. Now some will come along and say, Aha! Why create at one moment rather than the other? I don't know. I don't know that God would have to have some compelling reason why to pick one moment or another moment. So, I guess I think that time is necessarily implied by the existence of God, but... It's not crazy to me if you think that God created time. Maybe by time, you just mean a dimension of created reality. You just mean the fourth dimension of the cosmos, for instance. And so then, if God creates the cosmos, he would have to create time. Others will think that it's one thing for God to create time and another thing for God to create the cosmos in time. And uh, creating the cosmos would require first creating time. I don't think that's absurd, but. I guess what's most plausible to me is that metaphysical time, the fundamental reality that we've been talking about, not just the dimension of creaturely change, but the fundamental reality of time, it seems to me, is implied by the existence of God. Now, is time a thing, properly speaking? Is it a subject of properties? That I'm not so sure about. I don't think I really have a position about that. We talk about time like it's a thing but it's not a thing like most of the things that we can think of. Now, I'll make a few brief off-the-cuff remarks now about this idea that God is trapped in time. But if I'm right that time is implied by the existence of God, specifically by God's perfections and his perfection of omnipotence, if I'm right about that, then it's got to be foolish to say that God, in my view, is trapped in time. How would God be trapped Say, well, he couldn't get out of time. Well, one way to put it is there's nowhere else to be. If God necessarily exists and God's existence implies the reality of time, it's not possible that there should be anything which exists and time doesn't exist. It's just not possible that anything be absolutely timeless in that sense. So, time, it's not clear in what sense it's external to God. It's not clear that's a thing at all in my view it's not clear that it would constrain god in any way that he's not already constrained by his other perfections i mean is god trapped in his own omnipotence and omniscience if you want to put it that way just that he's that way and couldn't not be that way but it's hard to see that as any kind of undesirable trapping as any kind of bummer situation for god to be in oh no he's trapped in his omnipotence poor guy That just seems ridiculous. Well, God's limited. He couldn't make a big, stupid blunder. No, God couldn't make a big, stupid blunder. Like, he couldn't make a really foolish choice. But how is that being trapped? I think there's a serious problem here in thinking about time. We find it difficult to think about time. And one thing that we very often do is we spatialize it. So we think of things in the near past as being not here but a little bit far away and then we think of things in the distant past as really far away in that same direction and future things that are far future we think of as far off in some direction and uh, things that are about to happen we think of as close by we might think that as time goes on future things move closer to us and that after they're present then they recede away from us Well, I mean, taken literally, this is all just nonsense, right? Time is not to be confused with space. If you ask where the future is and you point in any direction, that's just kind of a category mistake. It's like you don't know what time is. You don't know what's even being referred to. But anyway, once you spatialize time, then you start to think, well, what's beyond that space? Usually when we think about space, we think of portions of space. The amount of space that you could put under a big dome, the amount of space in a solar system, the amount of space on the surface of the earth. So if you're kind of spatializing time in your mind's eye, then you might get to thinking, well, there's going to be somewhere else, further space beyond space. That's a problem, but I'm not going to go there right now. And so how can God be in time? Because then he'd be trapped and there'd be somewhere else that he's not somewhere else being whatever's beyond time. Again, we draw a timeline, you know, going from left to right, a line on a piece of paper. And uh, why, why can't we just put God, you know, a couple inches above that line and say he's outside of the timeline? Well, look, if time exists, there doesn't seem to be any out of it. There's nowhere to go, I think that you can escape time given that time exists time isn't a portion of space that you could get out of and go to some other portion of space so yeah i just don't admit that there's any bad sense in which god is trapped in time if god is in time in my view given that there is time everything that exists is in time you're in time i'm in time If there's such a thing as the number four, that's in time. Now, can that change? It probably can't undergo intrinsic change. That's what believers in abstract objects think, people who believe in things like the number four. But anyway, it's true to say on their view that the number four exists now, right? So then it would be, quote, in time. It's not somewhere else. There is nowhere else. Time is not space, Time is not a portion of space. It's only if you're working with some simplistic image where you're representing time like it's a portion of space, you think, well, I don't want to trap God inside that little box, inside that portion of reality that I think is temporal. So I'm going to say that God's outside of time. Okay, look, but whatever, you can't take that literally, right? Outside of time. There's there's nowhere to go. Time isn't space. So... When you say that God's outside of time, I take it what you're really saying is that God is unchanging and is even incapable of change. I take it that's implied by saying that God is essentially timeless, that God's perfection requires that God is, quote, outside of time. What you're really saying is that God can't change, not just in his character, but that God can't change in any respect at all. That I think is very hard to reconcile with scripture. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I'll talk a little bit about philosophy of time and how I see the two basic families of theories of time. Famous modern philosopher J.M.E. McTaggart famously discussed time and famously gave an argument for the unreality of time, which, as I said before, is, I think, a bizarro view. It's a crazy thing to argue. But he made a distinction between two approaches to time, which are called B theory and A theory. And this language is maybe a little bit confusing and it's not as popular as it used to be, but B theory characterizes time just in terms of before and after that fundamentally all there is to time is it's just an ordering of events you can take all the events and arrange them by before and after or same time and that's just all there is to it a theory is the idea that to characterize time properly you need the concepts of past present and future so not only is time an ordering of all events But some of those events are present, some are past, and some are future. And moreover, you could say the events in time take turn being present. Time involves dynamism or change. B-theory, the idea that you can characterize everything in terms of before and after, naturally goes with a view of time which is now called eternalism. Eternalism is just a view that all parts of time are equally real. The things that have happened, the things that are happening, the things that will happen— It's all just, from a God's eye point of view, real. God could, as it were, just stand back and view the whole thing. There's an eternal or timeless perspective in which things just are what they are. And and there's a before and an after dimension to this ordering of things. Sometimes, if you're influenced by physics, you'll call this the space-time manifold. But in any case, you're real. The Roman Empire is real. And the world in which they fly around between the stars and starships, that's real. And no one is more real than any other. An eternalist would say, you're quite mistaken if you think the Roman Empire used to be real. And the world where people fly around in starships isn't real yet, but will someday be real. No, it's all real. It's just that you're right here. You're in this portion of the timeline. And for you, what's present is 2018. And for the people flying around in starships... For some of them, what's present is 2510. And if you want to get more specific, a month, a day, a time within that year. To a large extent, the influence of physics is felt here because physicists tend to fall into this philosophy of time, of eternalism, because they represent the past and the future in their equations. And it's really natural to kind of think that those things are real. If you think the A-theory approach is correct that there's an objective present, and there's an objective difference between the past, present, and future. What exact ontology of time you should go for is less obvious. There's moving spotlight theory, which is basically a version of eternalism. It says that past, present, and future are equally real, but uh, they just take turns being present. That's not a very popular view of time. A slightly more popular view is growing block theory, where... The past is real, and the present is real, and the future is not yet real. So reality keeps getting added to, the timeline keeps getting longer as time goes on, right? Because for time to flow is for the past to be added to. That's called growing block theory. Some philosophers have argued recently, I think pretty strongly, that this is not coherent. The most popular view for atheists or people who believe in an objective present and in flowing time or dynamic time. The most popular view nowadays is presentism, which is that only present things and events are real. I'm a presentist. This goes hand in hand with my view that it's a mistake to spatialize time. I don't think that the Roman Empire exists as it were in some far off place. I just don't think it exists. I think it used to exist. The situation in which people are flying around in starships in the year 2500 or whatever i don't think that exists i think maybe it will exist of course i don't know that it will exist but suppose it does and that's all that we could say about it as, as of as of right now uh things are such that that will happen so i believe in tensed facts i believe that really when you're talking about the past and the future you're really saying something about the present You're saying something about what has been, or something about what will be, or even something about what could be, about what might be, or what will probably be. I think these are all facts that are packed into the real present. Presentism has its friends and its enemies. Some philosophers think that it's incoherent. How could there be relations of time between events if some of those events are not real? That's a problem that presentists have to face. I'm not going to go into that now. I do think presentism is intuitive and fits common sense better than eternalism. But I think probably my main beef with eternalism is that it rules out any sort of alternate possibilities. Any sort of actual possibilities. So you think that as you live your life, you make choices and you rule out things that were possible. So say you're asked out on a date and... uh, you could take it or leave it, but you you go ahead and take it. You say yes to that guy. You go on a date with him. Then he asks you to marry him a year later. And hmm, you're not too sure. Maybe you should hold out for somebody better. But okay, you'll marry him. And then shall we have kids or not? I don't know. You're kind of ambivalent about having kids. You can easily see just living with your husband forever. But oh, okay, I guess we'll have kids. So you have kids. Maybe this goes well, or maybe it goes badly. Suppose it goes badly. Suppose this guy turns out to be a wife-beating, terrible guy. It's just terrible. Like, this situation turned out really bad. And then you, the unfortunate wife, might wish that you could have a do-over. Now, you don't think that that's literally possible. You don't think that God's going to reverse time. right? That's not really possible, right? Because then at one and the same time, you got married and you didn't get married. If you could time travel and change the past, you'd have one the same thing happening and not happening at the same time in the same way, which is really nonsense. But, anyways, uh, you don't think you could literally get a do-over, but you do feel regret, maybe even guilt, because maybe you think these were foolish choices. You should have known better. But never mind that. If you should have known better, just stay with the regret. That regret, I think, feeling like you've blown it, that reflects your common sense assumption that things could have turned out differently you could have stayed single you could have said no to that first date you could have waited for a better guy to come around you could have just made it be you and him and said no to having kids and maybe you think well things would have gone better had i done that now you're not talking about counterpossibles, things which you could discuss but which are absolutely impossible to have happened no those were possible right Rewind to before you said yes to that date. There were many forking paths you could go down. Many possibilities lay before you. You don't think that your future was all written, so to speak, or all settled in advance. Okay, but look, that's what the eternalist thinks. The eternalist thinks that from your point of view, you're not sure what's going to happen. But from God's point of view, the whole book is written from the first letter, the first word on the first page, to the period on the last page, it's all written. That's eternalism. Now, to me, it's obvious that eternalism implies fatalism. Fatalism being that the future is as unchangeable as the past is. Aristotle said, I think truly, that even God can't do this to make something that has been done to not have been done. If something has happened, it's too late to avoid it, right? It will always thereafter be a fact that that thing happened. If it was a fact at the beginning of the universe that you were going to marry this guy a year from now, then it's too late to change it in the time of the dinosaurs. It's too late to change it when you were born. It's sure too late to change it when he's sitting there asking you out. You will marry him one year from now assuming an eternalist view, and assuming that that's in the future. So, eternalism, I think, rules out any actual possibilities. It rules out that as you go through time, you accept, so to speak, or choose some possibilities and uh, reject others. But that's what we think happens. We think the choices we make as we go through life cut off forever certain possibilities. That's a sort of change, by the way. It's change in what sort of changes are possible for you and for others. Now, friends of eternalism, friends of B-theory who are Christians, of course, they will dispute this. There's a ton of literature in historical Christian philosophy and to a lesser extent in Jewish and Islamic philosophy where they try to argue that this God's eye point of view, where past, present, and future all just are equally real to God, which is to say they're just equally real, and they say, well, still you can be free nonetheless. And I say, not if freedom requires an actual unconditional ability to do or to choose other than you in fact did. To put it differently, if freedom requires that you ever have any options in how your life turns out, it's incompatible with eternalism so if you know anything about philosophy of free will eternalists are basically always compatibilists or soft determinists one of the two there are some confused libertarians out there who seem to think that there are completely set facts about all the past present and future We could spend weeks and weeks going through the different theories that try to show that human freedom is compatible with God eternally seeing all the cosmos and its entire temporal dimensions, and so therefore compatible with eternalism. Sometimes they try to show how they're compatible, or they just try to refute claims that they're incompatible. It's a huge literature here, like I said, but in my view, the traditional defenses really don't advance much beyond just assuming the compatibility of God knowing everything, therefore everything being settled in advance, and are somehow being free. Even though from God's point of view, eternally, it's like your whole life has already happened. He's sitting there looking at it from either a timeless point of view or even just at the first moment of the universe if you think that God is in time. Okay, I opened several cans of worms there. How do you understand human freedom? Is human freedom compatible with a traditional conception of divine foreknowledge? What about arguments for theological fatalism or for fatalism just based on truth or time? There's a lot that could be said there, but in the last segment when we come back, I'm going to go into the question of the Bible. And I'm going to very briefly explain why I think the Bible by far best fits a view where God is in time, where God is actually changing. Now, there are many passages of scripture that I could pick here. One of my favorite is an incident involving King Hezekiah. But just to keep things brief, I'm going to talk about a famous incident in Exodus chapter 32. And this is the aftermath of the Israelites going and making a golden calf for them to worship. Because Moses has gone to the mountain to meet with God. And they're impatient and they think they need to take religious matters into their own hands. So they make this golden calf... And, of course, Aaron, Moses' assistant, goes along with it. Okay, that's happened in verses 1 through 6. Now, verse 7, the scene switches to Moses, still on the mountain with God, and it says this, Yahweh said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and out of you I will make a great nation." But Moses implored Yahweh, his God, and said, O Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, It was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Now we get to verse 14. And Yahweh changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Now, what is going on here? What's a change of mind? Change of mind is you're thinking something at one time and then at another time, a later time, you're not thinking that, or you're thinking something different. So your mind is one way at time one and a different way at time two. That's what a change of mind is. It says about as flat-footedly as you could possibly say that God changed his mind. Okay, well, God changed, and therefore God is in time, or God is temporal. There was a time when he was thinking one thing, and a little bit of time passed, and he's now thinking another thing. That seems really straightforward. Advocates of traditional views about divine timelessness have to say that scripture was written for people with limited minds, and so Of course, it's just obviously impossible, right, right, that God could be in time or change in any way, right? We obviously know that's impossible. Yeah, so this must be describing how things appeared to Moses? Okay, look, but it doesn't say it seemed to Moses like God changed his mind. Like the narrator, that's Moses or somebody else, the narrator tells you that God changed his mind. So, slap me and call me a fundamentalist, but I think the burden is on the Christian reader who wants to insist that this text really, properly understood, is consistent with God being timeless, that is to say, incapable of any sort of change, whatever. Because it straightforwardly says that God changed his mind. But now there's a deeper point. It's really not just all about what the verse says on its surface. What is going on here? Well, it looks like what's going on is a conversation and even a kind of negotiation. We do this a lot in conversation. You open yourself up to the other person, and it's kind of understood that because of your friendship, the other person can affect your choices and can therefore affect your future actions. So I might say to you, I'm going to take out all my life savings and buy Bitcoin with it. And maybe you think this is an incredibly stupid action, and probably it is. But insofar as you're my friend and you care about what's good for me, and also you're presupposing that I will listen to you, not just literally listen to you, like pay attention to your words, but I will open myself to your influence, listen to you in that sense, in a sense that the scripture often uses, You know, I I really want you to listen. You who has ears to hear, hear, right? It's not just the hearing that they're concerned about. It's the obeying. It's letting it impact you. It's letting it influence you. So just the fact that I'm discussing this with you, hey, I think I'm going to put all of my money into Bitcoin. If you're my friend and you think that's stupid, you're going to say, wait, Dale, no, don't do that. The price could just plunge tomorrow. You could have spent all your money and then you basically lose 90% of your money when the price plunges. How are you going to decide when to get in and when to keep on investing? It's going to be hard, right? Isn't this just a bubble that's about to burst? Right. You're not just flapping your gums because you enjoy it. Because of our friendship, you presuppose that you can influence me. Just by choosing to discuss that with you and being friends with you, I've opened the door to that kind of negotiation. Maybe if I hadn't talked to you, I would run out and invest everything in Bitcoin. But now that I've talked to you, I'm going to rethink it. Maybe I'm going to just decide that that's not a good idea. Now, that's not analogous to this case exactly, because God, who knows everything and is perfectly rational, isn't going to make a foolish or ill-informed judgment. Still, if God wants to open himself up to a conversation, to a real interactive conversation, even a quasi-negotiation with Moses, he can do that, right? He can raise the subject with Moses. You know what? I'm about to do this. Stand aside, son. And then Moses presupposes that he can have some influence over God. So he says, wait, no, don't do it. You don't want people talking to your own dishonor and so on. Now, what Moses doesn't say there Is that he's hoping that God will be less likely to do it just because Moses asked. He doesn't say, do it for my sake, but clearly he's throwing in his lot with the side of letting the Israelites have another chance. Later in the chapter, Moses again tries to negotiate with God. He says in verse 32 If you will only forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book that you've written. So he's saying, God, I really want you to forgive my countrymen, my people. If it helps, don't forgive me. Let me, let me take their place. If, if you have to not forgive someone, let it be me. Now, God doesn't go for that. He says he's going to punish the people who have sinned. But the point is that Moses gave it a try. He tried to influence God again. And earlier in this chapter 32, he seemingly does influence God. God has just had it with the Israelites, and because he has this conversation where Moses asks him not to, he doesn't cut them off. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't get rid of them. He could have. Now, which was the best choice? Was the best choice to get rid of them, or was the best choice to keep forgiving them? Well, I mean, I think that question might presuppose that there's going to be a set answer to that, In my view what's going on here is divine risk-taking it's a risk to keep on forgiving them and it's a risk to cut off and start over and um, they might be about equal risks from a perfectly informed point of view for all i know they could be equally rational risks maybe they're both compatible with god's perfect wisdom but god just decided to be influenced by his friend This is how we do things sometimes. Part of what it is to be a friend is to let yourself be influenced by the one that you're a friend with. You presuppose they're going to let you in to influence their motivations, and you're going to let them in to influence yours. This is not an anomaly. Moses is not the only one who has this sort of, you could say, argument with God, or conversation with God, or even negotiation. It happens in other places too, such as with Abraham. Another famous case, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asks to be excused from this terrible fate. The very act of asking presupposes that God is going to open himself up to you to be influenced by you. Well, God said no. Jesus was okay with that. Not my will, but your will be done. Still, it wasn't his will to go out in such a nasty, horrible way can't blame him for that, can you? So just to wrap things up, think about your own prayer life. When you pray and ask God for something, aren't you presupposing that it's somewhat been left open whether or not that thing happens? Aren't you presupposing that God is going to open himself to your influence? That he's actually going to take into consideration the fact that you asked He's not a vending machine. You can't push a button or say a few magic words. You can't just say in Jesus name. And then that somehow compels God to answer your prayer. You can't sit there and grunt and squint really hard and shout and yell and just somehow wrench your faith up to maximum up to level 10. And somehow that magically forces God to grant your wish. God's not a genie. But, but according to scripture, God has an interpersonal relationship with his people. And according to scripture, he wants us to ask him. And that presupposes that he's opening himself to your influence, that because you asked, or maybe because in some cases you repeatedly asked, you passionately asked, you asked along with other people, but in some sense, because you asked, in some cases he's going to do differently than he would have done otherwise. According to scripture, there are even cases where God says yes to a request, even when he knows it's not the best. I'm thinking of the case where the Hebrews demand that they can have a king like the surrounding peoples do. And God says, okay, well, here's your king then. But text gives the impression that he knows the whole time it's going to end badly because the culture has wicked traditions about kingship, the way that. Kings deal with people in the way that people deal with kings, and this is confirmed by the events that follow in the history of the Jews. So yeah, I do think it matters that time is real. I think it matters that God is in time. One very obvious practical way it matters is it affects how you think about prayer. You don't think then that everything that ever is going to happen is frozen in amber. It's already too late to change any of it. You think that's what's done is done. What's happening now is happening now. Well, it's too late for those things to change. But about the future, maybe some things are set in stone. Maybe the day and the hour that Jesus is going to return in. But then you think other things have been left open by divine providence. And that God's allowed himself some flexibility in how he governs reality. And that by giving us some freedom, he's let us have our own little tiny hand in controlling how things go so friend use that power of influence don't slump down like a fatalist and say what will be will be god already has his perfectly sovereign will i have no influence over that that's not what moses thought now maybe you and i aren't as great as moses but on the other hand we're children of the risen and exalted king jesus we're a nation of holy priests don't holy priests get to talk to god Don't they intercede with God on behalf of others? Mustn't they be able to influence God? I think so. It's amazing and wonderful that God has set things up this way and allowed it. He could have just done it all himself, but he didn't. Today's Thinking Music has been the track Strength of Knowing by Jesse Spillane. As always, on the blog post for this episode, there's a link where you can download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash Finally, let us know what you think give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com/groups/trinities The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers and encouragement.